Good Friday is a day that we remember the most horrific event in human history, the crucifixion, the execution, the murder of our Lord Jesus. It's Good Friday because we have a good God and a good Savior. Hopefully by the time we end tonight, you'll see that it is really a good day, but it is a horrific day. It is an excruciating day. It is a painful day. Uh, the, the, the day that we remember is the day in which Jesus is not only betrayed, but we're going to examine tonight how he is falsely, brutally beaten, mocked, uh, falsely accused, then executed, murdered in the place of criminals, uh, on a cross, in our place for our sins. And so uh, before we get to that moment, I want to begin where Jesus' ministry began. It began with a man, a forerunner, a man named John the Baptist, the guy who would go before Jesus. He's also his relative, uh, who, who foretold the coming of Christ, who told of what he would be, who told the people, don't look at me, look at Jesus. The whole point of John's life was to point to the person and work of Jesus. So on the day in John 1, 29, he says this, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the theme for tonight. We're going to behold the Lamb of God. That is Jesus Christ. We're going to behold Him. We're going to look at Him. That's what the word behold means, to look upon Him, to observe Him, to see. When John first said that, he was simply pointing out Jesus, the man who would take away the sins of the earth. Uh, so people would literally look, see, behold, there He is, that man. I can imagine what they were thinking on that day. This man, he would come to take away the sin of the world. If you are aware of your own sin, your own uh, shame, your own guilt, you're aware of, of the length at which you have rebelled maybe against God, maybe you don't believe in God, maybe you don't trust in God, maybe you don't hope in Him at all. Uh, sin is anything that is, uh, that is against the will of God. If you don't believe in Him, we, you need to know this, that we are all, everyone in here, sinners by nature, and choice, meaning we inherited it from our forefathers. For all the way back in the beginning with the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, we inherited it through the course of time, a sinful nature. Additionally, we are sinners by choice, meaning we willfully continue to rebel against God. Everyone is guilty. So when John looks upon Jesus and says, behold this man, he's going to take away your sin. This is great news. This is great news, especially for those who see their need for a Savior, those who see their need for their sins to be dealt with, those who see their need for the sins of the world to be taken care of. Maybe you don't see yourself as a sinner. Maybe you don't see yourself in need of a Savior. I hope by the end you will see that, but at least we can all admit today that if you look around the world, it's not okay. It's broken. The world we live in is broken. No one, nowhere, no, in, in any country, in any land, in our day and age, will look at everything and go, man, this is great. This is perfect. This is good. It actually was perfect and good when God created the earth, created the world, created mankind. But because of sin and because of rebellion against God, we've cho chosen to go our own way. We've, we've chosen to do the things that God has forbidden, celebrate, rejoice in, rebelling against Him. And because sin has entered the world, it has infected it, the entire humanity, not just us as individuals, but even the land, even the, the, the place, the air we breathe. Everything has been infected and affected by sin. So behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're seeing this Savior, this hope, this promise, this, this, I, this man who is going to fix what we broke. Great news. Problem is, there's no one that day who heard John make this proclamation that could have understood the totality of the day we now call Good Friday. 
the day we examine. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are transformed into Christ-likeness the more we behold him, the more we gaze upon him, the more we look to him, the more we see him. So tonight we will behold the Lamb of God. We will start not just with John the Baptist's proclamation that he is the Lamb of God, but we'll start on his last day, the day called Good Friday. Early in the morning, Jesus has gone to pray. We, we behold the Lamb of God in the garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 36, it starts by saying this, Then Jesus with them, that's his disciples, uh, uh, went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This is the garden where he goes. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. What has already happened is that Judas has betrayed him. One of his good friends, one of his 12 closest friends, has sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. I just need you to know that's not a lot of money. They sold out Jesus. He's gonna be, he betrayed him. Judas is act, in the act of betraying him as Jesus is in the garden praying. Rather than busying himself with, uh, with, with knowing the, the looming crucifixion that would come to him, Jesus goes to the Father to pray. See, when you're faced with anxiety, when you're faced with hardship, where do you go? Do you run to distractions? Do you run to, to escape? Do you want to escape reality? See, what Jesus does is he runs directly to his father to pray. Luke 22, verse 41 tells it this way. Uh, Jesus, he knelt down and prayed, saying this. We have a record of what he said in his prayer. Father, he's talking to God as father. If you are in Christ, you know, love, and trust Jesus. God is your father. That is who we run to in times of prayer or in times of need. We run to our Father for protection, for safety. Jesus is on the is about to be betrayed. They're about to come arrest him. They're about, he's about to then be brutally beaten, then executed and murdered. That's what's up ahead, and he knows it. He knows it. He's riddled with grief, anxiety, and sorrow. And so what he does is he runs to his heavenly father, God our Father, and he prays. He says, Father, if you are willing. Remove this cup from me. What he's speaking to is the looming death, the brutal execution, murder, the beating, the mockery. All that is about to transpire. He is asking God the Father, hey, if there's another way, can we choose it? I need you to see this. Jesus is a bold man. He is the boldest man who ever lived. He's the toughest man who ever lived. But he is human. He is 100% God, 100% man, not 50-50. He's fully God, he's fully man. In this moment, we see his humanity, his frailty, his, his, the, 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 the reality that he's gonna feel the pain and suffering, the torture, the torment that is about to happen to him, and he's anguished. He is in anxiety. He's in pain. He says it this way, he continues. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He looks upon the pain that is coming and says, Father, I want your will, not mine. He is completely selfless, though he sees the suffering, though he knows the pain is coming. We're told in Hebrews, he actually, for the joy set before him, he's going to endure the cross. He looks upon the cross and sees the pain and suffering, what is going to happen to him, and he's riddled with fear and anxiety, but chooses to press forward for the Father's will for your, you and I on our behalf. 
So when Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, I need you to see everything that proceeds forward is him literally saying, not my will, but yours be done, Father. I want to do what I'm about to do, all that is about to take place on behalf of you in here, in me, the whole entire world, humanity. 2,000 years ago, the people who were there, the people who are present today, everywhere in between, and everyone who proceeded before Jesus, Jesus is going to go to the cross for the sins of the world. The past sins before his day, the present sins of his day, and the future sins, which would include ours and, and beyond. He was going to suffer in our place for our sins, and he knew this. He knew this. Verse 43, it says that they appeared to him, so... Uh, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. He was so downcast, so stressed, so anxious that a heavenly being, an angel, needed to come strengthen and comfort him. I need you to see any time, if you are in Christ, you know, love, and trust Jesus, when you're in anxiety and you're in a pressured situation, an environment, in a moment, God wants you to run to him as father and he wants to strengthen you. He might use an angelic being, he might use a friend, and he might just simply use the Holy Spirit, his presence with you, but he wants to strengthen you. Notice he doesn't discourage him. He doesn't to tell him false truths. Oftentimes we comfort one another by telling everyone it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay for Jesus. And some of you, you know, you're like, well, I know the end. Yeah, he does too. But the pain he will experience is going to be real. He's so anxious in agony, verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood, blood falling down to the ground. See, when we behold this Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus in the garden, I want you to see this, this anxious man, a human man, a guy like you and I, who at, at the most painful moment of his life, knowing what's to come, the stress of tomorrow, of the looming day, he goes to his father. If you are in Christ, I need you to know that God is a father who wants you to run to him. Take your anxieties to him. Process your pain with him. Run to him. Don't distract yourself to numb the pain. Run to God who is a father. Luke, the author here, is a, is a physician. And so he's detailing a, a detail that's not recorded in some of the other passages uh, for telling the same scripture. But he says that he's sweating blood. This is a real physiological and effect that can happen in, in, in times of extreme levels of stress, the most intense levels of stress. You gotta, this is beyond that of most humans can endure. He is not being metaphoric here. Jesus is experiencing what doctors would call hema, hematohydrosis. This is what's happening. And as he's processing his pain with God the Father, he chooses what? Obedience to the Father. Why? Because he loves you, and he loves me, and he loves the world. See, he sees the world, and he sees the sins of the world, and says, I want those men and those women to be in my family, and I will pay for them to be in my family with my life. And I don't care what it takes, 
I don't care the pain I'll feel. I will not go around hardship, but I'll go right through it. I'm not going to turn my back on the people, but I'm going to face the problem head on. And so it begins. He is then arrested right after that time of prayer. Judas shows up, as with the scripture we have read earlier. He betrays him with a kiss. He is then seized, taken before the Roman governor Pilate, where we pick up in, Rome, in, in, in Matthew 27, 24 through 26, as we behold the Lamb of God is scourged. So when Pilate, this is the Roman governor, saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released them for Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. A couple things happening here before he is scourged. He is brought before the Roman Empire, the leader, the ruler, the governor, Pilate. And Pilate looks upon Jesus. I need you to see this. Pilate himself who is not a Christian, is not a God-fearing man, who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't trust Jesus, doesn't believe he is God, doesn't believe any of the things that Jesus says. He does, however, look upon him and say, not guilty. He was charged for the crime of blasphemy, meaning he made himself equal to God. The problem is it's not a crime to be equal to God if you are God. Jesus was God. Amen, yes. Pilate doesn't care about God. He's like, I don't follow your God. I don't follow your thing, so I don't really care. All I do know is he's not guilty. He's not guilty. The verdict declared not guilty. Jesus, sinless. Pilate, not a God-fearing man, looks upon Jesus, also recognizes his innocence. Jesus has been falsely accused. And now he's being, he's being tried, and he's been found not guilty, but the people, the crowd, they begin to riot. Imagine that. They riot. They're, they're losing their mind because Pilate is about to release Jesus. Riots are breaking out in the streets. The people are in uproar. And what do they want? They want the man who is innocent. Pilate says he washes his hands. I don't, this is an innocent man. See to it yourself. Y'all crucify him. Guess what? They can't legally crucify him. They can't. Jews could not use capital punishment, uh, the punishment of crucifixion. The Romans had to do it. So they began to riot to force the hand of Pilate to execute and now murder Jesus. It's the scandal that's going on. Just imagine the chaos breaking out. And they're chanting that they want Barabbas they want the, the, the criminal, the murderer free. And they want Jesus bound up like a murderer. And they said, let the blood, his blood be on us and our children. I need you to see, you and I would have been in the crowd. It's easy to look back and read this and go, you know what? I see that Jesus is innocent and I would have been on the team, innocent Jesus. Well, the Bible records that no one was on innocent Jesus' team, that everyone turned from him. The crowds, 
his disciples, his best friend. Peter has already denied that he even knows him. His other friend Judas has already sold him out. His father is not going to be there on his, at, at the biggest, his, his earthly father is not going to be present at the crucifixion. Only people are going to be there or one of his disciples, the crowds and his mother who's going to weep and watch her son be murdered. Everyone turned their back on Jesus. So I don't want you to read this and see Jesus is innocent. I would have stood for justice here. You need to see that we are the guilty ones. We are the ones chanting for Barabbas. We are the ones saying that Jesus should take Barabbas' place and Barabbas should be set free. What's unique about this is that in order for Barabbas to actually be free, of the guilt of murder, Jesus is going to have to die in his place for his sins. They have no clue what's happening. They're delivering Jesus over to suffer and die and actually, be the, because he's declared innocent, because he is innocent, he is going to be the sin-atoning sacrifice, not just the substitute for Barabbas, but for you and I, for the sins of the world. He is about to take on the sins of the world and be punished for the sins of the world. Instead of the guilty man, Barabbas, the innocent man, Jesus, is going to be punished. Instead of the, the guilty man, the guilty woman, you and I, Jesus will be punished. Before, before he is crucified, he is scourged. What scourging is, 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 a, is horrifically cruel. They would take a leather strap, oftentimes bone, metal, different uh, things that would pierce the skin were woven and dug into the, the, the leather strap and then used to whip the back, the body, the face, the head, the arms, the legs, the entire body of the person being scorched. It was so intense and so painful that oftentimes people who were scorched would die just from scourging. It was, it was so gruesome. In fact, it was actually like uh, the, body, the body was being filleted open. Skin was not only ripped off, but the intestines were exposed, and bone oftentimes was being exposed. Jesus is not only going to be crucified, but before that, he's going to be brutally beaten. He is scourged. And the people, bloodthirsty people, those whom he came to save, forsake him. They jeer at him. They they perpetuate this beating, the beating of an innocent man. And then he's mocked. So now we'll behold the Lamb of God who is mocked. Rather than being worshipped as he ought, Jesus is mocked as king. He is the rightful king. He is the only king. He is currently king. He was born king. At Christmas time, we see that King Herod saw that Jesus was born king and sought to kill him. Where Herod failed to kill Jesus, Jesus will now lay down his life willfully. But before that, he is mocked. Mark 15, 16 through 20 says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns they put, they put on him. And they began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. They were doing this in mockery. And they were striking his head with a reed as he has a crown of thorns pressed through his brow. They're hitting his head 
to inflict more pain. And then they spit, spitting on him and kneeling and paying homage. And they mocked him and they sh- then stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on his, put his clothes on him and let him out to crucify him. They are making a mockery of Jesus who has claimed to be king because he is king. He claimed to be God and because he is God. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now he must suffer the consequences of sin for the sins of the world. That's what we are seeing. They're mocking him by twisting the crown of thorns, placing it on his brow. They, they, they just imagine the pain of, of, of the thorns being pressed through his head. This is what the incarnation, the, the baby Jesus born in the manger, this was his destiny. The brow that his mother kissed, the soft hair that was once on his head is now being pierced, blood dripping from his face, bones exposed, skin removed, intestines suffering. And the people who are doing this are now mocking him. I need you to know this is not standard, this was not standard protocol for the Romans in crucifixion. The scourging was, but the mockery wasn't. The, the dressing one in a purple robe was not. The putting the crown of thorns was not normal. They were doing this because they wanted to specifically mock Jesus as king. The purple signified royalty. The crown signified authority. The mockery is being set. They're spitting on him, faking homage. Hail the king of the Jews. And after they get done playing their game, they rip off the cloak from the skin that was once, that has already been torn apart. We struggle to barely rip off a Band-Aid. Imagine your entire body being an, an open womb, gushing blood, intestines struggling to survive, wrapped and then tormented again through ripping off the cloak. Jesus is not just stripped of the cloak. He's mocked and stripped of, they're trying to strip him the glory due his name. I need you to see, friends, that we do this same thing to Jesus. We strip him of the glory due his name every time we hear what he has said and turn away and walk away in disobedience. We're making a mockery of his word. We're making a mockery of his ways. We dishonor him with our lips and our lives. This is why we need a savior. So now we behold the lamb of God up on the cross. John 19, 17 through 18 says this. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in between. So Jesus is now sandwiched in between two men, two criminals. See, crucifixion was created by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. It became really famous under the leadership of Alexander the Great. Uh, what, what crucifixion was, was statewide terrorism. It would be something akin to today where we see viral videos of, of, of live streams of beheadings going, out, going on in, throughout the world. 
this is what crucifixion would be like. It would have been done at the shopping, at the shopping malls, right outside of HEB, lined up people on crosses, suffering and dying, so that the people would know, if you believe what this man believes, if you, if you agree with him, if you follow him, that's your fate. This was state-sponsored terror to inflict in the people whom the Romans oversaw and led to tell them, if you get out of line, this is your lot. You will be like them. Crucifixion was oftentimes not hung up high on a cross, but, but take a, a tall cross shoved down into a hole so that when the person set, while they are being asphyx- uh, they're in a moment of asphyxiation and dying and, and suffering and, and bleeding out and can't breathe, they're eye level with everybody so they can see. So as you walk by in the street, you would see that could be your fate if you follow that man. It's amazing that we're still, we're still following him. It's amazing that, they, that, that, that the Christians looked upon the cross of Christ and did not despise it, but were willing to embrace it. It's one of the reasons why we, we believe that, that, the, that this is true, is that who would be willing to endure the most horrific, the most disgraceful, the most painful forms of death? For a nobody. But not only was this disgraceful form of death, it was the most dreaded form in the ancient world. It's literally where we get the word excruciating, which means from the cross. We had to create a whole new word to describe intense pain. Excruciating from the cross. When someone was crucified, their hands were stretched out and their legs straightened in the, in the form of a lowercase t. Their hands were bound, their feet were bound to the, to the wood. And then they think na- railroad spike of a nail driven through their wrists into the wood to keep them hanging. Hanging literally by their wrists and by their feet. They would suffocate, they would die on the cross. So as we examine and look upon the lamb upon the cross. As we look at Jesus, we look at the thorns pressed through his brow. We look at the sweat dripping, the blood dripping, the, 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 the blood from his hands, the piercing through his legs. When we look upon Jesus on the cross, lifted up, beholding this gruesome, grotesque moment, I don't want you to miss how awful and how horrendous it is. We must behold it. Why? Because I want you to look at it, examine it, and remember it was our sins that held him there. Why did it happen? Because of us. Because we rebelled against God. Not just us, our forefathers, our ancestors, everyone before us, and everyone who's come after us. Like, well, that sounds like a brutal death. Why would God... Why would that be, why is that the way he did it? I need you to see, we have not committed just merely a crime. We have not just merely sinned. We have, we have created an eternal, we have committed eternal crimes against an eternal God. And so Jesus is punished with an eternal crime. He, sinless. He, guiltless. He, innocent. You and I are not. So Jesus hanging on the cross is hanging in your place for your sins. 
Don't look upon the cross and just see the horror and go, I, why, the, why in the world would God do this? This makes no sense. I need you to see why in the world would God substitute himself for you? He substituted himself for you because he loves you. Look upon the cross, examine the cross, behold the lamb upon the cross, and see the length that Jesus went to save you. See, you and I, we measure value typically by what we are willing to pay for something. If you see something uh, and and it's on Amazon, you're like, I don't want to pay that price, it's not worth that to you, correct? Some of you will, will go on eBay and pay more for something than it's worth because it's worth thing, it's worth for you something greater. Right? We see value by what we are willing to spend. Correct? I want you to look at the cross. The cross tells us that humanity was of the highest value. Look at the link that Jesus went to save you. We created the problem. Jesus was the solution. He's fixing what we broke. He's standing in our place for our sins. He's suffering so that we might not suffer. He's giving his life so that we might have life. Willfully, he does this. Behold the Lamb of God who, t- who saves sinners. And this is what he's doing on the cross. He's, he's saving sinners like us. Luke 23, 39 through uh, 43 says this. One of the criminals who was, who was hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? You're not the Savior, Jesus? Save us in yourself. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded saying, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You have two men. One on the right, one on the left of Jesus. One is continually mocking him. And we've heard this. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he stop all evil in the world? Why doesn't he just fix my problems? Have you ever asked this? Why did God enter your problem? Why did he enter your mess? Why did he enter humanity? Why did he put on skin and bones? We just talked about the very beginning. We all agreed here that the world is a mess. The world is awful. And he chose to live in it willfully to grow up walking the streets that everyone else walked, having the blisters on his own feet in the Middle East, no air conditioning. Like he, he lived it just like man. He did it in our, in our place. Jesus doesn't look upon evil and suffering and step back and go, you know what? I can do some magic from behind the scenes. You know, he enters it himself and says, I'm going to deal with it personally. At the cross of Christ, Jesus is dealing with sin personally. Why? Because it's personal to him. He wants personal relationships with those whom sin has robbed and, re- and, and caused rebellion against and has seized and has taken captive. He's on a rescue mission, like a warrior to save. This is what Jesus is doing. And you have one man who looks upon it and sees, 
well, if you were so powerful, you should just fix my problems. He kind of sees Jesus as a magician or a genie. The other man looks at Jesus as a savior. And what does he do? He recognizes that he is a sinner. The man on the cross recognizes that he says, indeed, justly, we are receiving due reward for our deeds. We are guilty, he says. That man, Jesus, is innocent. In this very moment, this man also recognizes that he is a sinner in need of saving. And he recognizes that Jesus is his only hope. So he looks upon him and and confesses publicly that he is a sinner. And he professes that Jesus Christ is not a sinner, but he is an innocent man. And then he, he pleads with Jesus for forgiveness, for life, for hope. Let me enter your kingdom. Remember me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I don't know what you need to do, Jesus, but I'm coming to you. That's what this man is doing. He's about to breathe his last breath and he's pleading with Jesus to remember him, to save him, to rescue him, to redeem him. He looks upon his life and sees all of his sin. He has no way at this moment to fix all the things that he has done. He's about to breathe his last on a cross. He's pleading with Jesus for hope and for redemption and for salvation. And what does Jesus say? Yes, today, because you're about to breathe your last, when you do, you'll be with me because I'm going to bring my la- breathe my last two. And we're both going to go. We'll be in, in paradise. You'll be set free today. See, for one man, his suffering is about to end. And for the other man, his suffering's only beginning. The thief who rejects Jesus will breathe his last. I need you to hear this. This is true. That man, 2,000 years ago, hanging on the cross next to Jesus, rejects him. To this day, he is experiencing the suffering and torment that Christ has experienced on the cross. And he will continue for forever. The wrath of God will be poured out in eternity forever for those who reject the wrath remover. Jesus is the only one who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the only one who can remove the wrath of God. Jesus is literally taking the place of sinners on the cross. You have one man who believes and is saved. The other man who rejects him and will be in torment. I need you to see this. We examine the horrific event of the cross so that you know the link that Jesus went to save you, but also so that you understand and know that the, pain, the consequence, the, the penalty for sin is death separation from God eternally. Jesus actually speaks of hell more than anyone in the Bible. And hell is not just hot. It's forever, and that's a long time. And and hell is not ruled by Satan and demons. Satan and demons are punished there, along with anyone else who rebels. It is Jesus Christ. I need you to see this. It is Jesus Christ who oversees hell, the torment, forever. Just so I need you to see this. The man who's standing in the place for your sins is about to be the one whom you look to later and you go, man, I rejected you. He says, man, I offered my life to you. As long as you have breath, you have hope. That's what we see in this man. It is not too late for you. It's not too late for anybody. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you have hope. You have a chance. And it's not, you don't have to do anything. 
You just have to look upon Jesus and believe. All this man does, does he, does he right any of his wrongs? No. He writes none of his wrongs, the, 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 the thief on the cross. Does he, say, does he apologize to anyone? Does he forgive anyone? Does he reconcile with anyone? Does he do anything? No. He is at the last moment of his life. He confesses his guilt. He confesses his need for a Savior. He turns to Jesus, the only Savior, and is saved. You don't have to do anything but come to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the cross of Christ and say, my sin, my Savior. That's what it is. He'll figure out all the rest. But that's where we start. My sin, my Savior. Because we must behold this man, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. He doesn't just save sinners. He takes them away. Our sins away. Removes our sins. We're told that he removes our sins uh, as far as the east is to the west. He blots out our transgressions, Isaiah says, for his own sake and remembers our sins no more. Those who know, love, and trust Jesus can look at the cross and say, all my sins have been dealt with. Past, present, and future sins taken away. And we see it this way when he says that his atonement is finished. In verse uh, 28 of chapter 19 of John, it says this, after Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. And they put a sponge of, a full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? The atoning work of Jesus Christ to stand the place for sinners. The punishment was over. It was done. It was dealt with. If you are in Christ, there's no more punishment. Zero. No more punishment in Christ. It is finished. This is great news. The atonement is done. Your sins have been dealt with. If Jesus can die 2,000 years ago for the sins, your sins of the present, he's also atoned for the sins of the future, the ones that you have yet to commit. Done. They've been removed from you, removed from your account, placed on him, punished by him, so that you could have life in him. The great English preacher John Stott said it this way, for the essence of sin, meaning this is what sin is, is man substituting himself for God while the, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is why Good Friday is good because Jesus takes our place. Jesus is your substitute. On the cross, that's what Jesus becomes, your substitute. He's died in your place for your sins. On the cross of Christ, he becomes your redemption. Your redemption. So no matter what you've done, what's been done to you, whatever you're enslaved to, Jesus has redeemed you, meaning he's bought you back. He's, he bought you back with his life. That was the payment that was made to buy you back. Good Friday is good because Jesus is your sacrifice. We don't, need we don't need blood from bulls or goats or anything. Only the blood of Jesus will atone for sins. Jesus is your sacrifice. He has stood your place. Jesus is your righteousness. This is perhaps the best news of all. 
because I need you to see this, that Jesus is a righteous, meaning that Jesus took your imperfection. There was a great exchange that happened on the cross. He took the sin of mankind, bore it on his body, was, was crucified and punished in our place for our sins. He exchanged himself with us. So he got our, our filth, he got our unrighteousness, so that through faith in Jesus, you can have his righteousness, his sinlessness, his perfection. You are not just declared righteous through faith in Jesus, but he has given you his righteousness, applied it to your account. You are justly righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That means when God sees your account and God looks upon you, he doesn't see sinner. He sees righteous son or daughter of God if you're in Christ. That's what he sees. Good Friday is good because Jesus is your wrath remover. What we've just examined is Jesus drinking the full cup of God's wrath. He, Jesus had made amends for your guilt, your wrongdoing, the wrong done against you. Jesus has atoned for your sin, your past, present, and future sin. Some of you might say, you don't know what I've done or you don't know what someone else has done to me. You don't know what's happened, Al. I need you to see this. Jesus is your ransom, meaning he's already paid for your release. It doesn't matter what you've done. The ransom has been paid. Freedom is offered. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? The ransom has been paid. Jesus is your reconciliation, meaning that he has restored you now to right relationship with God the Father so that you with great confidence can approach God as Father like Jesus did in the garden and, and seek him, processing your pain with him, knowing God as Father. And lastly, Good Friday is good because Jesus is our Savior and he has our only hope. And so we're going to celebrate that and we're going to remember that. And we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and invite Hunter back up. And we're going to sing one last song. And then we're going to take communion or the Lord's Supper together. But as we do, I want us to look upon what we've just seen, what has just been described, what has just been explained. And I want you to see the length that Jesus went to save you. And I want you to rejoice. I want you to be glad because you are indeed loved. And what was once an emblem of suffering and shame, the cross, for those who know, love, and trust Jesus, it's become a symbol of victory. Good Friday is good because sin was dealt with. Good Friday is good because death has been put in the grave. Good Friday is good because our sins have been atoned for. Good Friday is good it's because Jesus wins the war. We will celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But until then, may we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.